Welcome to Clareton Conversation. This is Katie Espester. My guest today is Barry Stevens, a Toronto documentary filmmaker and screenwriter. As a director and screenwriter, he has won numerous awards for his work, including writing The Diary of Evan and Lau, which starred Sandra Oh in her very first role. You might know her now from Killing Eve, the BBC hit. He's also won uh, many international awards, including for his personal documentary called Offspring, um, The Persecutor, about the first trials of the <clears throat> International Criminal Court, um, about Sarajevo and war in Bosnia, and uh, most recently about for History TV with War Story. Welcome to Clareton Conversation, Barry. Thank you for having me, Katie. It's really nice to do this. This is such a, an extraordinary CV you've got. It's actually too long for me to list all your awards. So I suppose I, fir- I should first congratulate you on being that very rare beast of uh, being a, an internationally acclaimed Canadian film writer, a uh, film director and uh, documentary maker. I, I think you, you, you accumulate a, a CV if you just survive long enough, actually, uh, since, I'm, since I'm no longer young. It, it, does, it does tend to add up. So, the list. so, so help out everybody else here, because we have a number mm-hmm. of people listen to us who work in the creative industry, and you this huge success story, and you say it's a survival skill. What's key? What is the key survival skill that you want to pass on to accumulate this kind of CV? Well, it's it's an interesting question, and of course, it's probably particular to the country uh, and the, the the artistic medium you're working in. Um, in my case. Uh, Canada is actually a very good place for a documentary filmmaker um, because we have the National Film Board of Canada, uh, which is, I think, unique in the world, being a sort of a government filmmaker institution. Uh, we also have um, tax credits that allow people to make films that might not have uh, commercial viability. This is true of other countries, too. but um, And Canada has had a something of a tradition of documentary film, um, going back to the National Film Board, and uh, its first director was uh, the uh, Scots Englishman um, John Grierson, who actually coined the term documentary. Uh, so it, it has a, a long tradition there in, in, in this country. But as for me particularly, I think that I would say that um, there's it's like there's a Venn diagram if you know those two circles yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 they uh, overlap and they overlap and and the the two circles for me are things that I want to do and things that the market will actually <laughs> actually support me for and there's a very narrow little overlap so yes, I've been I... able to find projects in that overlap that allow me to to make ah, films. So that's the survival skills, the Venn diagram, being in the, and also obviously being in the right place, which almost strikes me as being a bit of a, a good luck. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, luck but, is luck is always underplayed by people who've had any success, but you, a lot of it is is due to luck and also tremendously, you know, help from other people. You know, if you find, you know, try to find good people to work with, try to find people who uh, you respect and uh, who you like to work with. And then also, of course, you know, when I was teaching uh, documentary writing at one point, um, the, the, the two things that are very important are, are showing up on time and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and not being an asshole. Yeah, so yeah. so the, those things are probably as important. When you're hiring somebody, 
you want to know that they're a good person, have good work values, and that they have some certain level of, of that they're excited about it, that they're interested. But their experience and their skills are actually less important than that because those things can be taught. Those things can be learned. Um, and, and so the, the basic values of, of having good work ethic and also just being a nice person are, are actually really important. Mm, yeah, we could summarize it as don't be a wanker. Don't be a wanker, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the great survival skill in life. <laughs> so, Barry, what, what brought you into uh, this very high-risk profession? You know, you're a, you're a thoughtful man. Your, your, uh, your documentaries are, grapple with the big issues of the world. Um, like, why express yourself in documentary filmmaking as opposed to writing a novel or, or becoming a university professor? Right. I mean, I often thought I would like to have been a university professor, especially when I see their their um, their uh, health and uh, retirement <laughs> packages, and they're once every seven years going it's sabbatical. off. Sabbatical. The sabbatical. Yeah. But um, that is until you get into a faculty meeting and you see the backstabbing. With <laughs> well, all due respect, the stakes are so low, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Was it Henry Kissinger who said that the battles are so nasty because the stakes are so low? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just to go back a little bit around that. Just before becoming an artist of any kind, I was a social worker. I did a lot of other jobs like waiting tables and working in the bush and working in a factory and a farm and that kind of thing. But but I thought that I wanted to be somebody very serious who would deal with, well, I suppose I did end up doing that, but somebody who was going to be uh, an intellectual or, or some kind like a like a, a Alan Watts or Steven Pinker or something. And, and I, I really wanted to, to understand the world. I was very young and I was doing a degree in psychology and somewhere in there, uh, there was um, a workshop where people did guided meditations. And the guided meditation was you go across a valley and uh, over a river and then you climb a hill and you climb a great mountain to go speak to a very wise man who was living in a cave. I mean, it sounds very silly, but you, you do this in a sort of meditative altered state. No drugs, just meditation. And you reach the, so I reached the, 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 the top of this mountain and there was the old man in the cave. And I asked him, um, you know, what should I do to understand the world? And he suddenly just picked up a rock and threw it at me and screamed at me. He says, get off this fucking mountain and, and winged rocks at me until I was chased down the mountain. He says, just go down to the valley and play. And well, at least he didn't say 42. Yes, right. Well, yes. Yeah, and, that's and the uh, end of... Um, Douglas which, Adams. Does, um, yeah, Hitchhiker, yeah. Is it Hitchhiker's Guide or The Restaurant at the End of the, the Universe? That's the yeah. Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Yeah, the answer to the, answer to the meaning of... The, what is the meaning of life? <coughs> And the, the answer is... Um, 42. 42, yes. So, but, but I, t I took it as like, oh, um, I'm young, I should be doing something different. And so I stopped being, at that time, I was a social worker, working with troubled youth. And, so uh, this is a vision you had of being, yeah. of being screamed at and chased by a guru. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, it just happened that at that time, <laughs> my, my, my social work program was being closed due to lack of funding, and that same week I'd done, I'd done acting classes, and I did, um, I did an audition just to get over the fear of auditioning, which terrified me. And they called me up, and they said, oh, you got the part. And I said, what part? I couldn't, I forgot. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to. So I got the part. So it just happened I started becoming an actor 
just at the time that I was had lost my uh, program to treat uh, to work with troubled children. Um, and what did you act in, Barry? Well, at that time it was it was comedy, sketch comedy, improv, um, uh, sketch comedy, and some improv. And then later on, I started to to act in um, on the stage in Toronto, and in a little bit in television and movies, and then a lot in television and movies, commercials. You know, I just I just didn't have any CV, so I just made one up, which got <laughs> I lied, and I got. Well, caught. that's what every CV is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably didn't win any of those awards. It's just, um, but uh, yeah. So so I started to act, and then on the set of, um, you know, on TV sets, if you're an actor, you have a lot of time just sitting there waiting for your scene to come up. And I was reading script, and I thought, oh, this is this is good. I could probably write one of these, and I think I could write it arrogantly. I thought I could write one better. So I started to write uh, drama TV and um, pitched a few to some people, and very kindly they, they did hire me for one. And so I began to write drama, and uh, bit by bit dropped. I didn't like doing commercials. I didn't like lying for a living, which is what I think commercials are. So what, what, what did you plug? <laughs> What did I plug? I plugged uh, Bell Telephone um, in Canada. I had uh, things like like the, reach out and touch someone. Uh, well, it was it was uh, it was for business, you know. And uh, there was a commercial I had which ran for like two years. It made me like you can make quite a lot of money doing commercials for very little work because you get residual payments. Um, I did like a, I did an American commercial for burgers. I had a friend who did an American commercial, one commercial, and he lived for a year off it. So you can you can sometimes do well, not always. But um, no, I did a Suzu Trooper. I'm not a station wagon kind of guy. People stop me on the street and say, "Oh, you're not a station wagon kind of guy." So at a certain point, you you get treated oddly in commercials. You don't, you know, you're called the talent and. Uh, it became, I didn't feel comfortable doing it, you know, and uh, at the same time I was starting to write screenplays, so I actually just grew my hair long and told my agent, I can't do anything. <laughs> so, so well, then, look, in this modern day and age, long hair would actually stand you and you'd even get more commercials Probably, long yeah, hair. yeah, yeah, in those days. Grow a little scruffy beard, put up a man bun. Yes, oh God, I can't stand man bun. But... <laughs> But anyway, I, I, I did that for a while. I did writing uh, drama, including the, like the, the film you mentioned, The Diary of Edmund, among, among other projects. And there's a weird thing. The Diary of Edmund was an exception, a couple of exceptions, but very often in television you're dealing with, um, uh, you're dealing with executives who, um, who don't like... There's a tremendous number of people. The, the screenwriter William Goldman said, if you want to see who the screenwriter on a movie set is just look around for a guy who's standing there doing nothing and looks miserable. That's the writer because <laughs> well, he's he'd seen know. everything being yeah. changed. And, yeah. uh, and, and I, I, as it happened, a, a director I knew who did both drama and uh, documentary asked me to come in and help write a documentary. And I loved doing it. It was uh, called Gerin Louise and it was about the South African Truth Commission Ah, um, yeah. And it was a, it was a really good film. It but actually, the Truth and Reconciliation. Yes, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm. and uh, it, we had great access to to a lady whose That's... husband had been murdered, and and it was about this guy who was a torturer 
Just to remind everybody what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is. Perhaps you can do that, because that was under Nelson Mandela, wasn't it? It was, and um, or actually even, yeah, just it was. And and what happened was, of course, after the terrible battles that went on to end apartheid, uh, the racial segregation system in South Africa, um, they set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was essentially, if you if you were a bad person who did terrible things, you killed people, you tortured people, you could, if you weren't one of the very worst and one of the leaders, you could come in and tell the truth about it, and in front of your victims, in front of the people, the relatives of people who'd been killed, and and in exchange for the truth, you had forgiveness. Or at least you had you didn't go to prison, so that was the reconciliation part. It was a model. It was I think it was the first one, and there've been many since. And people criticize the model. There's all kinds of debates about it, but it was a powerful thing to watch people uh, tell the story of their husband being murdered, or or um, confess to things that they did. And so it was a, a really interesting film and. Uh, and I love it. It must have been very hard to, to. I mean, it's hard to even read about that, much less watch people's anguish. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. And and um, but the film did really well. It won the Emmy Award, and uh, I didn't direct it. I, I was uh, merely the writer. And uh, but it was a very good experience for me because there were like four of us in a room: the editor, um, producer, co-writer, and the director. And it was like a cottage industry compared to an industrial, compared to a factory. Comparing um, drama to documentary is like going from a factory to a little cottage industry where you're shaping something that you do with just a couple of other people. And it's much more personal. And, uh, and also the conversations were better. And it's, it's, there's lots of good drama now. Back when I was doing it, a lot of TV was really dumb. Oh, no, I remember. I remember. Why do you think yeah. I read books? Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. You know, and it's because it's it just it wasn't, it wasn't worth my while to watch, watch TV. But, yes. you know, on average, I mean, there was some exception to the rules, of course. But, yeah, no, I completely understand why you would have chosen documentary making versus drama. What, what decade are we talking about here? Um, that would be the 90s. The 90s? Yeah. And, well, and the, it was turning around in the 90s, in fairness. By the 90s, you started to get something. Well, there was. I'm, I mean, you, 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 you work in a country, you're Canadian, but you work in, in Britain, and Britain has, has always had better television and better drama yes. than North America. And Canada, it won't go into this, but, but Canada's done some good stuff, but very often we are a service we service the American market because it's eight dollars cheaper. So, um, so a lot of our work is is done uh, not very not very high quality stuff. Um, it's that's not universal. There is good Canadian drama, but it's um, and my God, there's bad British drama too. So you know, it's 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 a mixed bag. But on the whole, it's a little probably a little better in Britain of the standard. It- it does sound to me, Barry, as if you've almost fell into this extraordinary career, as opposed to you embracing it and choosing it and and fighting for it. I the, guess maybe just being modest. Are you being? No, uh, no, I'm not. It, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. It it, it kind of I kind of stumbled into it step by step, and coming back in a way to that, you know, that guided meditation. I ended up doing things that were serious 
actually, and grappling with large questions. In the end, I did, but I came through it through uh, came to it through a more playful and uh, and um, less uh, intellectual pathway. But yeah, I did in fact stumble into it. I didn't. I've never been very goal oriented, actually. I've never sort of thought, well, this is my plan for my life, and not particularly driven. Uh, driven to make things and and driven to to have some meaning in my work for sure for sure that's been driving me but not thinking oh i'm going to make this much money by this much mm. this, this year or or if i do this i will be able to make a good living i was always always wanted to you know make sure i had enough money to survive but don't we all and i would do anything to to do that like these commercials but but, but no. I, I think that is actually one of the as I continue these conversations with people who work in the creative industry, many of them say something similar to what you've just said. You know, there's, there was no clear goal-oriented path. So I'll be then promoted in five years, and I'll be earning this amount of money, and then I can save that amount for a deposit, a down payment on my house, and pay off my mortgage, and, and then by 55 I'll be... What, yeah. what is it? Freedom 55. I'll be able to retire early. You know, like there was like nobody seems to be thinking that way in the creative industry. Instead, it's very much focused on producing. The goal is to produce a high quality piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. So I it's a di- completely true. different mindset. And, I, it, and if you're one, you can't understand the other. And if you're the other, I, I've got a, a lovely friend who took who retired at 55. And she said to me, but surely you took this into consideration when you were younger. <laughs> And I was like, actually, actually no, <laughs> never crossed my mind. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the two groups of people. Yeah, so. and and I, I think there's a lot to be said for for thinking like that, thinking like a grown up. But but if you are oh, I'm if, deeply envious, I wish I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, it was a no anyone. I always ask all my guests if they would um, had a particular work of art that inspired them. And that made them think, ooh, I really want to do that. Something that st- stuck a chord, struck a nerve, plucked a chord. What, whatever, whatever happens with chords and nerves. Yeah. Is, you know, the funny thing is, I, when, if, to answer that question honestly, I don't usually think about documentary films, even though there are many documentary films that I, that I, that I really like. There was one I remember, it's really strange, I remember seeing a documentary film on television when I was about 13, and it was about, um, it was about science and time, and it was just so beautifully done. I don't know the name of it or anything, and I remember thinking, wow, if you could use film to talk about ideas or to get at things but still be narrative and emotional and visual, that's, that's great. And, um, Indeed, it is. Yeah, and uh, but the th- things that inspired me back when I was a kid were were actually movies, were were were, were uh, drama films. You know, I remember when I was probably ten or something, I saw Lawrence of Arabia, and or Doctor Zhivago, and I would. Um, David Lean, but David, David Lean is Lean's a British film. celebrated British film director who did both of those films. That's right. Along with um, Passage to India and. Yeah. Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, Bridge over the River Kwai, yeah. And a brief encounter and a host of others. Did he do brief encounter? I'd forgotten yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a really wonderful film, actually. Yeah. Um, and I, I love those films, actually. Well, anyway, yes, and it inspired me it's to the point. I, remember, I saw Zhivago when I was probably 12. And I, I, I 
basically couldn't get out of bed the next day. I was so, I couldn't, it's like I was living inside that film for weeks. Yes. So, so you very, took very the powerful. power of, of filmmaking and the possibility of documentary making to express ideas in narrative forms. And you put the two together to create your own award-winning documentaries. Well, that's, that's generous. Um, I, I think that I've tried to do that, and I think that I've not succeeded. There is nothing David Lean-like about most of these films, but I think I do aspire to that, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, the, 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 uh, a friend of mine said, uh, actually the director who got me into documentaries, said that uh, um, drama films should feel real and documentaries should be dramatic. Interesting. And I always believe that. Mm-hmm. I always and I, I always bring to to films a sense of drama, like like um, this film which you mentioned. Um, um, what did you mention? O- Offspring. Offspring. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about Offspring because that's probably the film that propelled you into the international arena. Yeah, and Offspring. Well, Offspring was because um, I I was a, a, a sperm donor child, one of the very early ones, which I found out after my father died. Our mother told us. And I'd always thought, well, I'll never know who the uh, sperm donor was, who the biological father was. But at a certain time, um, we met, uh, my sister and I met a guy who was uh, also from the same uh, doctor uh, and uh, in England. It was, I was born in England. And we met him and we did a DNA test. And I, I just, at the very last minute, I just took a camera along and I filmed that. And it turned out he was our brother. He was he was my brother. Uh, that is to say, we had the same sperm donor, even though we'd never met. We were both by then in our um, about I guess I was probably about forty nine at that point. And um, some people approached me and said, "Well, this is a really interesting story." And we calculated that this guy, the sperm donor, we didn't know who he was then, that he'd had hundreds of children. We we, we there are various bits of evidence that suggest there were hundreds of us. So uh, that's an interesting story. So uh, nobody had, was covering this story then. This is now it's in the press all over the place. Uh, New York Times story this couple of days ago. But then not. And so somebody came up to me and said, uh, "Oh, I want to do a little news piece on you." And I said, and I thought about it. And I said, well, "I'm supposed to be a filmmaker. You know, I should do this." But I thought, I can't. I, I don't want to make a personal film. That's just too awful. So I'll make a film about it, and I'll just you know mention that I. I'm one of those people, and I'll go speak to other people, and we'll see about it. But as it turned out, the, the personal story took over, and everybody liked that more, and I began to see, yes, that it actually is, and it's a detective story. So it has that, genre is very helpful. It, it helps you structure a film, and a detective story, everybody knows how they work. You mm-hmm. have a detective, there's a, some sort of event that you're trying to find out, and you're trying to find a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So that's what we were doing, and, and that's how I structured the film. And it, it worked because it's really, of course, a film about the meaning of family. What does it mean to meet a brother uh, that you never grew up with, who came from the same father, you have no connections with him at all except for that, and yet you really like him and you really bond. So what's, how... what, what's the meaning of the genetic tie? Does it have any meaning? And what's the meaning of family? So that was what the film was about, and it it um, it, it, it did well, and it... it, it was um, actually maybe influenced UK policy. UK policy now is that sperm donor offspring, when they reach after a certain 
um, after the early 2000s, anyone born of sperm donation or egg donation after that period has an absolute right to know the identity of the donor when the offspring reaches, I think, 18. So that change, making it non-anonymous, was um, a very minor influence was that film. Well, so because the people saw it in the UK. And so that was... Congratulations, that was, nonetheless, thanks, for having... Even, even if it was only minor, although it doesn't sound like it was minor. Oh, I think you it, know? it was, actually. Um, but, but I think it, 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 a few people saw it who were key people in that period. So, yeah, it... it and did you ever track down who your real father was? Yeah, even? yeah, we did. We did. He was a fellow called uh, Bertolt Wiesner. And uh, you can look him up. And under, like, people who have... In Wikipedia, the men who have the most children, the number one is Genghis Khan. And number mm-hmm. two is Wiesner, because they say 600. There are actually people who have more. There are actually sperm donors who have, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty certain of this, have over 1,000 children. But we have hundreds and hundreds. And so far, I've found um, uh, about 35. And in fact, I'm making another film about it, about the fact that there is very little regulation in the United States, basically none, in Canada, lots of places and there's no limit on the number of children a sperm donor can have and the risks of people meeting and marrying or just not knowing and having genetic disease and the uk has taken this on most of northern europe has taken this on australia new zealand but not the united states or canada or many other countries so um i'm going to go film a big meeting with all these um sperm donor offspring, all my half-brothers and sisters and their children and sometimes their grandchildren. Well, that's going to be a, going to need a big room. Yeah, you know, it is. A big barn in uh, Western yeah. England. Yeah. Or Chichester. You're going to need a, you know, the, the old joke, we're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need you, a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger, a bigger barn. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite movies, is Jaws. Yeah. Going to need a bigger boat. But <laughs> your, your work also with the ICC, one of your uh, films was The Prosecutor, in which... You followed the Argentine head yes. of the International Criminal Court. Yes, um, the chief prosecutor. The yes. chief prosecutor. Um, what's his name again? I'm so sorry. Luis Moreno Ocampo. Yeah, Ocampo, that's it. Ocampo, um, is, uh, you, you know this because you, you've worked in Latin America, but Ocampo is the matronymic. Everyone yeah. says, but his actual, his, his, his father's name is Moreno. Yeah. And that's, uh, but, but he's but, known but, as Ocampo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are which children. Is, is, there are children in Sudan in Sudanese refugee camps who are called Ocampo because they, they felt he stood up for that the Darfuri issue. That do you think that that film? Um, you know, I saw it and it it chronicled quite honestly how negotiated the creation of the ICC was. How, and I hope you forgive me for saying this, how weak the ICC is. That it it it's. You, we, there's this extraordinary scene in which you watch Ocampo jollying a dictator into recognizing jurisdiction um, in public, and you and it was an extraordinary piece that you got the, on on camera. Mm. But you realize that this is not this is not a foregone conclusion that the ICC would emerge and emerge with any degree of legitimacy or strength. Do you think that your film, The Prosecutor, had something to do with strengthening his position? No. No? I don't, actually. I thought it was a very powerful piece of... Well, thanks. I, I And didn't I it win do... awards? It won awards, too, didn't it, uh, The Prosecutor? It, some minor stuff, yeah. It, it, uh, I mean, it got, it got 
got played in at festivals and so forth. But and it was seen on television. It was actually seen on the BBC as well in a cut down form, um, which I, I didn't really like very much. But uh, yeah, I, it, it, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has been it's been a very mixed story, very mixed story. Um, and since then, I think Luis Moreno Campo, who is no longer the prosecutor, uh, his term expired. He did some things which I, I think were problematic, um, and he was very much criticised. But it's not. But it's not personal to him. I liked him very much. But as you say, it's weak because it depends upon the national governments to make arrests, and um, there is no police force. So it's like having a court, a court without a police power mm. is very weak. Mm -hmm. And since there's no international police, uh, it, it remains something of moral suasion, really. But, but I think if you conceive of the future of the world, it's hard to conceive of it without some means for international justice. Yes, I completely agree. And I say this in a time of Brexit, you know, we have to work together. Uh, this sounds like a political party platform, but, you know, I think it, it's foolish <laughs> to separate yourself off from the whole. That, that, that boat is left. That's no longer possible. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. And, and even after Brexit, there will be, um, oh, you know, Britain, Britain will, st <laughs> well, it'll still have relationship with Europe far more. There'll still be Europeans in England. There'll be English yeah. people on the continent. There'll be trade. Yeah, it's just the nature of it that has to be worked out. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting because Prosecutor came along because, the film I mean, um, because I really wanted to make a film about world government, which has been an obsession of mine. It just seems like a natural stage that eventually, that we already have world government, international capital and the U.S. Army, you know, forms a kind of global stability of kind hegemony of some hege kind. hegemony and it's not necessarily democratic and it do not doesn't necessarily benefit you know ordinary people but it exists and it's bound to exist simply because of the incredible network globalization of travel of trade of communication well, and, and, and and the global problems from from and of course the, the biggest global problem issues with the, the the climate change so so these things obviously have to be addressed globally and yet there's no democratic means to do so so i thought well this is interesting and there were these these fanatic uh, idealists who promoted this back in the 40s and it was a big movement actually towards in fact the united nations was intended to be have its own world army which of course didn't happen and um it still has a little committee for the world army that still meets every couple of weeks in the United Nations. But anyway, so, so I wanted to make a film about that because I thought it was kind of crazy and fun. And then the ICC came along and I read, okay, here's the court. Here's the justice system for the world government. So I went over there when it was just being formed and uh, I was the first person to get a camera in there, but I couldn't. Well, here's the I, Venn diagram. We're back to the exactly. Venn. What you want to do and what the world is prepared to fund you for. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and would you say that... I mean, I know you then followed up the ICC by doing um, the war history about Canada's um, veterans, um, chronicling them, and and then um, dealing with World War One and World War Two, and most recently Afghanistan. Um, out of all the films you've made, which ones do you think have been the most that you're most proud of? That's a, that's a great question, and it's I it, I think it's pretty clear for me the only ones that I feel really worked 
really well were offspring. And About the sperm donor father. Right. And that had a kind of a clarity and a humor that, that just, and the story was good. It, it just worked. Um, and frankly, yeah, the War Story series, um, a number of those I'm proud of. In fact, I'm, I'm proud of all of them, really. Well, so but, you but, can't choose but, between your children, can you? Well, you can't, yeah, because because I, I don't, you know, the film is like, there's a film called The Bomber's Dream about bombing. I did a film, Prosecutor, and I've done a number of others, all of which I feel a, that I'm not crazy about. I think they, for one reason or another, it's very hard to, you know, nobody sets out to make a, a flawed film, but somehow, you know, you don't really know, maybe if you're a genius like, Vim Vendors or somebody, you can you, you you always make a brilliant film, but no, no, I've most, seen a number of his stuff. They're yeah, not all brilliant. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Wait. But it, it's so so the War Story series was really, even though it's very conventional and and parochial in the sense that it was only Canadian. I did do some similar stuff for Britain and America, but they weren't as they weren't as good. The the War Story was very very conventional. It's just basically archive and interviewing old men. Who were fight, who were and in Afghanistan, young men, but it it had a, a an honesty and and I think the interview process got at the real experience of combat in a way that was not sentimental and not triumphalist or good guy bad guy that really was got into into the nature of of war and and those films as simple as they were. Perhaps because they were simple. Um, really, for me, I, I am proud of. You know. The war stories. Mm. And they went on to win a number of awards in Canada, at least, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, um, Remind me which awards they've won. Oh, the Canadian Screen Awards for Best History Show, Best Direct, couple of times. Best, best Director directing, for Documentaries. I think, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, so what's next for you, Barry? World government. <laughs> Maybe if somebody will give me a, you know, $500,000, I will do that. But uh, I may do it, actually, I may do it as a radio piece. But um, there's that, and um, I'm actually doing, I'm writing a film for somebody else, and uh, I'm doing another film about the, um, the sperm donor story. Uh, because we have these, we now have 35 of our brothers and sisters, and, um, and as I say, there, that's 5%, between 5 and 10% of the total that's out there. So try to find some more of them, but also look at those questions of um, why aren't there regulations in North America and elsewhere to limit the number of children that are produced? And what is it about that? Why is it that people think that either adoptees or us don't have a need to um, know who their progenitor was, to know who their biological parent was. And I think that is a fundamental need. And it's interesting because it goes in a way against a kind of a left-wing view of genetics, which the left generally is a little suspicious of genetics because it sort of reminds them, I think, of eugenics or the Nazis. Anything you say that that's important they they fear you know racial analysis, but it's very hard to deny that genetics are that who your father was biologically has some significance, and yet that is denied routinely by the sperm by the 
fertility industry and uh, and elsewhere. So, yeah, I'm making a film about that. And um, beyond that... I'd also be interested to, you know, this. you said earlier there might be sperm donors who have um, created up to a thousand children. Yes. I, I'd be interested to know what drives a man to just endlessly go into these steroid little fertility clinics and produce donations, in quotes. You know, like, that's, first of all, just plain time-consuming, and one would have thought to a degree slightly tedious. To what end? Why would you do this? <laughs> you know, I it's like... I, a, I, think, I think most men, uh, most young men would not find... Uh, uh, masturbating necessarily tedious it's something they do <laughs> but uh, but but there's the, got to be better locales to do it in though than <laughs> than, than a doctor's office yes, <laughs> with yes. you know maybe a discreetly open drawer with uh you know dirty magazines poking out you know yes, and uh yes. there's just got to be it's like if you want to do it like do you have to do it there <laughs> that's right well i i money of course is one motivator they get paid uh, and so the uh, the term donor is, of course, part of the system of lies that are, that is involved in the fertility industry. They're not donors; they're vendors. Although, to, to be fair, in Canada and in the UK, they are more or less donors because you don't get paid, but you get paid expenses, which is fair. But um, but what else motivates them? Because it's not just that. There are people, there's a guy in England who does it for free, who skirts the whole um, government-regulated system. And just on the internet, women, he goes over, I guess he masturbates in his van or something, and then takes, <laughs> takes the sperm in, and he's had about 800 kids. I think it's, I think it's a weird kind of vanity, and um, it is weird, isn't it? Yeah. I, I'm trying to go find some guys and talk to them about why they would do it now they're going to say that they want to help women mm. that's what they're going to say if that's true or not well that's the thing about documentary about a nobody good knows interview. 800 women that need help you know it's like mm, you know you got to take that one with a grain of salt <laughs> absolutely and, and when you when you do an interview when you film somebody the wonderful thing about that is that you get the audience gets who the person is as well as who he or she presents mm. themselves as the two the two different la the layers of of, yeah. of truthfulness. Yes, you know that saying. There's uh, for everything you do, there there are three reasons. There's there's the reason you tell other people, there's the reason you tell yourself, and then there's the real reason. <laughs> so when you put thirty five of you in a room together, thirty five brothers and sisters in a room together, do any similarities leap out at you? Anything kind of jump? Anything? Whoa! Who would have thought? Who would have thought we'd had such a disproportionate number of yes people who are left-handed, for example. Yes, who can do that thing with their tongue. Yeah, yeah, that's Make... right. Uh, but yes, the answer is yes. And, and, and strangely enough, very few scientists. The, the sperm donor was a very distinguished scientist. Um, he, you know. He was. He, he. I won't go into it. But he. He was. He was quite significant. He. He invented the first pregnancy test and did a lot of things that were very interesting. But um, there are no. There's only one scientist that I know of out of that 35. Some of the children are like my daughter is a scientist, but um, but so not many of those. But tons of journalists and broadcasters. They're. Um, 
filmmakers. At least, yeah, there's one other documentary producer, but several people who've worked in film and done documentaries, um, writers and, um, and as I say, journalists in both Can in, in Canada, the U.S. and the U.K., people who never knew each other. And there are some people and there's there are some people who know each other, who knew each other before in their business. In, in broadcasting. But didn't know that they were related. That's right. So you can imagine once we get up to 600, there are going to be some probably, very possibly some nasty surprises. Well, you, you can't help but, um, you know, I, not that you should think of people this way, but scientists must be all over you guys like a bug on a sweaty neck. You know, just... Uh... Well, two of the children, my daughter and one other guy who's a geneticist, one of my half-nephews, um, want to do a cohort study on us. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so it's if, a, a Checking people... for diseases, lifestyle differences. Yeah. Uh, if you were raised in Britain and raised in Canada, but all your socioeconomics were the same, what are, what are the differences in, in, in health outcomes, um, schooling outcomes? Yes. Like, it, it's... Uh, you, there's 600 of you. You are... Uh, a gold mine, an untapped gold mine of, we're, we're of very information. We're very talkative, and, and you get them together. Whereas my sister, the sister with whom I grew up, who's also a sperm donor child, she had a different donor, and the, her cohort were very bright. The, the donor was a, a psychiatrist who um, kind of invented antidepressants. Um, she, she and her sisters and brothers are much quieter and much more... Um, introverted. They're lovely people, but if you put my gang with her gang, it's like <laughs> our gang is like blah 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 blah. <laughs> it's quite funny, but that 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 so that that obviously have sort of been dictated to me that I should make films about DNA, if you like, and I am fascinated by it. So that there'll probably be more work done there, but also I am really. All my life I've been taken with um, armed conflict and this weird thing where people fall into tribes and then hate each other. And part of that is that I've always temperamentally felt that was stupid. Ever since I was a little child and we would play in my garden in England and, um, you know, these jets would go over and I would ask my mother what's going on and talk about this our conflict with the Soviet Union and nuclear weapons which I learned about very early and was just appalled because it was so obvious that there was no real reason for that and a part of that was when I grew up I had my English family who many of whom fought in, in the in the military and my uncle, my namesake, was a distinguished naval officer. And then, but my, my, I had a section of my family by marriage who were Germans and fought for Hitler. So I knew all them too. And then later on, through the sperm donor situation, uh, my sperm donor was a Jew. So uh, some of my great uncles and great aunts, and I've tracked them, were, were murdered by, <laughs> murdered by, if you like, my, uh, my other relatives. So um, it's always seemed to me really uh, dumb yeah. that people have these tribal conflicts. And um, I'm fascinated by the way that they do. I'm fascinated by that, and which is where that world government thing comes from. And I'd, I'd, I will no doubt try to do more work 
finding the Venn diagram space to talk about some of those things in a way that hopefully will be entertaining and enlightening. Well, I certainly hope so too, Barry. And I look forward to watching them either on TV or at some of the uh, the uh, events. I think I saw ICC at the your your Crown Prosecutor. They, so you know, you could the prosecutor that film about the mm. ICC. I think I saw it at a Canadian sponsored event in in London. Oh right, yes, yeah, the yes. Canadian Embassy the, um... rolled out rolled out the red carpet for you. So it was at the the the, the Frontline Club, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. The, what I'm doing right now, of course, is fishing for an invitation to the next invite. To of, course, your of course. Of <laughs> course. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing whatever you produce, Barry, because they're always um, they're, that Venn diagram, that sweet spot you talk about in between your Venn diagram. It's very sweet indeed. Oh, that's and a nice I'm, thing to say. Um, I'm looking forward to what what you produce next. And thank you very much for coming on the Claret Conversation well, and sharing you. your um, experiences with us. Oh, it's been very delightful and a really nice opportunity, actually, to think about your own work, <laughs> which you <laughs> often don't do. So I really appreciate it. It's great. Yeah, it's good Thank fun, you. isn't it? Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you. Thank you.